The College Park today is Vision Sunday, a, uh, a day where, on behalf of the elders, I'm going to lay before you some important things relative to our future. We're looking at a number of different biblical texts today and just kind of answering the question, so where do we see God leading us as a church? Henry Blackaby has a wonderful statement about discerning the will of God. He says this, that discerning the will of God is simply finding out where God is working and join Him. I don't know about you, but the passion of my life is to figure out where's God working because I want to get in on it. I I love that undefinable sense when God is in the midst of his people, a still silence that comes over a body of believers, or uh, just unbelievable expressions of gratitude, or the sense that God is in the middle of his people. That's just a beautiful moment. And I love to be at the place where God is at work and to join him there. You see, more than somehow uh, giving... Uh, God permission to bless our plans, what the real desire of our hearts is to say, Lord, where are you working and and how can we get in on it? And Vision Sunday is a day for that, uh, just like that for us here at College Park Church. Our aim is to ask ourselves, so where is God at work in our midst? How can we get involved in what he is doing so we can know what God's will is for this body of believers? Uh, November marks the eighth month of ministry uh, for us here at College Park. And the reason that we came here is because we saw that God was alive and well at College Park Church, and we wanted to get in on the party. (laughs) We wanted to join the movement. And it's been amazing for us to be able to see the ways in which God has uh, fulfilled our calling and given us just a real sense of purpose and and really made this place home. I just want you to know that the Vrogop family absolutely loves doing ministry here at College Park Church. I feel like I grew up at this place. I feel like I'm one of you, and either I'm like delusional or this is just really working well. So I just am just thankful for God and his grace. I thank God always for his wise mercy. It was hard pulling us out of West Michigan. But I see what his plan is, and I really know that God sent us here for a reason. And this morning, I hope to be able to lay before you some of the reasons that I think God has allowed our paths to cross. God has exceeded our expectations in every way. In fact, my theme as I look around this ministry, I often find myself saying this, Mark, just don't mess it up. That's my theme. Just when I pray, I say, Lord, help me just to not mess up the beautiful thing that you did and are doing here at College Park Church. You see, ever since this church was founded in 1985 in the Holiday Inn, God has, 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 has his hand on this place in phenomenal and wonderful ways. From meteoric growth to where we are today and even through the tough times of testing and searching for a lead pastor, God has never abandoned this church, not once. In fact, I, there's a verse that comes to mind when I think of you and that season. It's this verse in Job 23. But he knows the way that I take, and when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. You see, because I'm kind of new around here, I can see gold, I think, with different eyes, maybe than some of you who've been around here for a while. What I see is the gold of a tested and tried people, a people who had walked through dark valleys, and now there's beautiful, refined fruit that's come out of that season. I see the gold of a staff filled with godly, gifted, and ready to serve you people. I I see the gold of elders who have been through difficult days together and in that difficulty learned humility, a passion for prayer, and a deep commitment to personal godliness and continual renewal in our lives. And I just want to remind you that at the end of the day, all of that gold that is produced, all of the fruit that comes from those seasons of testing, only comes because of a wonderful, benevolent, and gracious God who deserves all the credit and all the glory. And I want to remind you that as we look to the future, and as God does some wonderful things here in our midst moving forward, that we ought to never forget that at the end of the day, we had nothing to do with it, and it was all of God, all of mercy, and all because of Jesus. In fact, one person has said, if you could explain it, God had nothing to do with it. (laughs) So I trust that you realize that God has done some wonderful things, but with his activity comes responsibility comes stewardship. To whom much is given, much is required, College Park. That in a season of testing and trial that produces refined gold, there are certain things that God requires of us. And that's why today is so important. Because clear vision is about stewardship. 
It's about taking the resources, the the giftings, the callings, the experiences that God has given us. It's about combining passion and providence and planning and saying, look, we will not waste what God has done. It's about saying, we don't want to look back on our lives and, and have our children say, Mom and Dad, what were you thinking? You had so many opportunities to serve Christ. We don't want to waste one year, one month, one week, one Sunday but to see them all as a gift. And so what I lay before you today is important because it's stewardship. This is not just about vision. This is not just about programming. It's not just about a plan. This is about being stewards of testing and trial that has produced gold so that we do not waste God's benevolent, gracious hand upon us. So today is critical. So I want to begin by talking with you about our mission and our strategy and also our values to rehearse for you what are the key things that relate to what we are centering our minds and our hearts around. Our mission statement as a church is igniting a passion to follow Jesus. It is this idea that we believe that Jesus should be the target point of what we're all striving towards, and we believe that we want you to be passionate about Jesus, and we want every Sunday to ignite you in a passion to follow that Christ. It means every area of ministry really circles around that core mission. This is the thing that in the midst of the city of Indianapolis, while there's wonderful churches all around us, this is the unique arena in which we have decided this is our focus, this is our intent, this is our purpose. There were for years some historical and cultural principles at College Park that were very useful, and our elders took those and condensed them into six key words. These core values reflect the flavor of how we do ministry. These are the things that make us a little unique. And in some cases, a little weird. (laughs) The first is the preeminence of Jesus. I trust that by the time we've come through 18 messages in Colossians and a number of months in this book, you understand that Jesus is the core, right? You don't make him Lord, he is. You don't make him sovereign, he is. You just have to figure out how to deal with it, right? So the preeminence of Jesus is first. The second core value is the idea of the authority of the word, meaning that our ideas, our philosophies are all subservient to the power of the text, that we need to be men and women of the book, and that the Bible, by definition, is sufficient. It's sufficient for ministry, for counseling, for preaching and teaching. But at the end of the day, we must be judged not by our ideas or our philosophies or what we did. We are judged by how we have put ourselves into the midst of this book and lived our lives. The third piece is a redemptive community. It is that we believe the church is filled with broken people. And if you come to church and you're not broken, you're not going to feel comfortable here. Because this is a place of broken, sinful, hurting people who are all a mess. And we're all in process of trying to figure out how to reconnect our lives to the person and work of Christ so that we can be built upon Him. It means that as a redemptive community, the thing that makes us unique is that we've all met Christ. The reason why that cardboard testimony is so powerful is because it gets beyond the the, the veneer Christianity that we all know but all hate. And if you remember those testimonies, the more transparent, the more real, the more pointed, and the more honest, those were the ones that were the most powerful. And you ought to remember that and put that in your minds, that the play church, to have veneer Christianity or to fake it, results in weak church, without power, without impact, and without influence. Redemptive community isn't just a fruit, it is the root of being able to not only preach Christ, but show people why he really makes a difference. The next one is the idea of biblical unity and diversity. It means that we think that a diverse church says something beautiful to our community, says something powerful to the people who come in. Diversity in terms of within the bounds of orthodox belief that you've got some freedom to explore things and say, well, I don't know about that. I'd like to discuss that a little bit further without someone telling you to be quiet because you can't think about that in this context. That there's theological freedom to explore within the boundaries of safe orthodoxy. It also means that there's a commitment on our part to be ethnically diverse, different in background and color and experience, even different in our responses to a sermon. Some of you, the best thing you can do in a sermon is sit silently and nod your head. Others of you are more of the encouraging verbal persuasion. For instance, for instance, Corey's my, my personal encouragement and says, come on. And that just, that, that gets me, that helps me a lot. So if you'd like to know how to do that, we're going to have a class next week. And he'll show you exactly when to do it and how to do it and do it well for the glory of God, right? 
There's just something great about that. But it also means that if you worship with your hands up, great, hands down, eyes closed, eyes open, we don't care. We just want you to worship Jesus. If you take notes, if you just listen, if you close your eyes and you don't sleep, we're great with it. Just come. We want you to be part of the body of Christ. It also means extravagant grace. This is something that's beautiful about College Park, something our family personally experienced, is that you want to be as gracious as God has been to you. And we're going to err on the side of being gracious to one another. And it also means the call to go. Hear me. This church cannot just be about programs that serve our needs. This church cannot just be about what we do on Sundays. Our role is to help you understand the word so you can get out of here. You shouldn't just hang out here. That This is like the kumbaya place to hang out all the time. And that's great to do relationship with one another. But we are teaching and training you to get out and do the work of the ministry in the community. To take your neighborhoods, to take your marketplace, to take your families by storm with the glorious truths of the gospel. We are called to go. So these values aren't new to College Park. Maybe the wording is a little new, but the bottom line is these have been always a part of the fabric of what's made this church so special over the years. Now where many churches fall short is they never translate their mission or their values into a strategy. Meaning, they, they don't really think through how they're going to go about implementing some of the things that they're passionate about. And you know, the Bible is filled with all sorts of teachings and examples of strategy. You have the apostles that have an early problem in the church between people who weren't getting foods, and so they developed a strategy of appointing deacons over that scenario. You have Moses, who was weighed down by all of the um, counsel that he had to give to the people of Israel, and his father-in-law comes and identifies for him a structure to be able to get ministry done in a way that was effective and didn't kill Moses. So the Bible has all sorts of examples of strategy within it. So strategy is not a bad word. But the Bible tells us that strategy should never become the thing that we focus on. Rather, strategy becomes the means that we accomplish our aim of making much of Jesus. So our strategy, as we have expressed it to you, is this. We want everyone at College Park to exalt in Christ, to experience community, and to embrace their calling. So if you join College Park, we have expectations of you. It is that we believe passionately that your relationship with Christ grows as you experience that with other people. It means that Sunday morning is the place that we exalt in Christ. You know, if you don't come on Sunday morning, you're going to miss like the family mealtime of College Park Church. The time that the main thing is focused on. It's also during this Sunday morning worship time that I believe every Sunday, heaven and hell is on the line. Exalting Christ or exalting self, exalting Christ or exalting the devil through our fleshly deeds. That's on the line every Sunday. And exalting Christ is a serious, sober, and celebrated enterprise. Something we need to embrace. And so we want you to come Sunday morning. That's where we exalt Christ. Experiencing community means that we want you to engage in life-to-life contexts. We want you to find someone and get into their life and them into yours. It means that if you just simply come on Sunday morning and that's all that you do, I'm glad that you're here. Please keep coming. But you also need to know that I believe that fundamentally it's not good for your soul that that's all that you do. I believe that life on life, connections to one another, is a critical part of spiritual growth and maturity. And you don't grow well when you grow solo. And then finally, it means that every single one of us has been given a calling by God. Embrace a calling may seem kind of touchy-feely to you, but I chose to use that kind of language about embracing a calling rather than, you know, go do something. (laughs) Because I want you to realize that all of you have a call from God. And I want you to figure out what it is. Because here's what I've learned over the years. You know, you can't really motivate people to get involved in a ministry by guilting them or threatening them. You can't guilt them enough to serve over the long haul. But if you can help people discover what God has called them to do, they will do it over and over and over. You don't have to motivate them because the calling is from God. And when times get tough, they just get in there even harder. So what I want you to do is to figure out, so what has God called you to do? Get after it and go do it. In some cases, that's going to be inside the ministry of College Park Church, which would be awesome. In some cases, that's going to be something outside of the ministry of College Park Church. And I just want you to know, when we talk about embracing a calling, we're not just thinking only about College Park Church, because the kingdom's a lot bigger than just us. Regardless, we want you exalting Christ, finding a place to connect, and then embracing the calling that God has has upon you. My labor and my strategy in communicating this to you is to help us not become or to be a come-and-see church. You see, we are not focused on having lots of people and having big crowds 
or just to become big for big sake. It's important for you to understand that the definition of success for me is not the number of people in this worship service. The definition of success for me is the percentage of people who are in this worship service who then connect into a smaller group, in our small groups or ABFs or some other Bible study. It's the percentage of those people who are then using their gifts in ministry. That percentage defines for me success because that percentage is a good indicator of spiritual depth. So you can do a lot of things just to attract the crowd. And let me just also say, don't be against big church just because it's big. There's things that a big church can do that other churches can't. And also don't assume that the smaller you are, the better you're able to connect. Because there's a lot of churches that are really small and it's really hard to connect. They're called cults, right? They're small and unfriendly and everyone's related to one another. It's just weird. And there's other places... There's other places that you could go and find a way to connect easily regardless of the size. So size is not always an indicator of the opportunity or the ability to connect life to life. It relates to a mindset, a frame of reference, and a passion on the part of people to say, when I'm coming to church, I'm coming to exalt in Christ, and I'm coming to pour my life into other people. And everything in the ministry from our kids' programs to our adults, from what we do in music to preaching and teaching to the things that we're involved in, strategic relationships in our, in, our, in our world, in our local community, around the globe, all relate to this important strategy. It's how we take exalting Christ, experiencing community, embracing our calling, and translate that into fulfilling our mission of igniting a passion to follow Jesus. Now, with that as the background, let me have you turn over to Revelation 3. I want to first address... What does it mean to exalt in Christ a little more deeply, and how does this relate to where we're going in 2009? Revelation chapter 3, verses 15 to 20. The reason this text is important is because, first, it's familiar to most of us. You've probably used it. But also, it relates to the whole issue of what does it mean for Christ to be in the center of a church. Look what he says to the church at Laodicea. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. Now some of you may have heard it said before that God wants you on fire for him or he wants you stone cold. That's not right. God doesn't want you stone cold. What he wants is he wants you useful. You see, in Laodicea there were two streams, one hot, one cold. The hot stream was useful for certain things. The cold stream was useful for other things. The challenge was is when the water became lukewarm, it was useful for nothing. So what is he chiding this church against? What's he getting after them for? He's getting after them because they weren't useful anymore to him. Well, why weren't they useful? Look what he says. So you are lukewarm, I will spew you out of my mouth. Verse 17. They weren't useful because they were arrogant. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing not realizing that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. You see, this church thought that they had it all together. They they, they thought that they were rich, and we're not told here how they thought they were rich. Maybe it was materially. Maybe they thought they, they had the best preaching in the area. Maybe they thought they had the best programs in the area. Maybe they thought they had the most godly people. Whatever it was, they thought they were really ringing the bell for Jesus, and he tells them, no, no, you're self-deceived. The reality is you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And then he counsels them. Verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire. See, Jesus had things that they needed. They have forgotten that Christ was their sufficiency. He says, so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so you may see. Verse 19, those whom I love I reprove and discipline so be zealous and repent. And then he says this stunning passage that I think most people don't use correctly. We use it as an evangelistic verse. This verse is communicated to the church. The church that thinks that it's got it all together, it's got all sorts of resources, got a great thing going for Jesus, and guess what? Jesus is outside of the church. The tragedy is is that these people were really happy and content with who they were as a church, and they had no idea that the center of their universe, Christ, was outside. And the image is, he says, Therefore, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Jesus was outside of the church. He wasn't central. And this happens so easily. 
When our programs, our likes and our dislikes, our history, our future become central, it begins to push Jesus out of the door. And the text is calling for us to hear Christ knocking and to be sure that he is always central. Because when Jesus becomes the core, everything else falls in line. When his people worship him, they live for him. When people exalt in Christ, everything else that they would need comes from Jesus and they see themselves for who they really are. They become useful to him because everything they see is being connected to the centrality of Jesus. He is the core. And we need to be sure that he remains central. Now, the main way that we do this at College Park is through Sunday morning. It is my time to rally you and say to you, Jesus must be central. And that we will look at the whole orb of the Bible through the lens of the centrality of Jesus. So the idea of Jesus being central is not just the theme of Colossians. It's the theme of the Bible. It's the theme of salvation. It's the theme of heaven. It's the theme of new heaven and new earth. It is the theme, and it should be the theme of our lives. So we're wrapping up our study of the book of Colossians. We will complete it in the end of November. And I want to give you some clues as to where we're headed into 2009. We'll begin the year with a week-long emphasis on prayer. The last day of 2008 and the first day of 2009 will turn with people praying in this building. In 30-minute increments, you're going to have an opportunity to sign up to come, read the Bible, and spend 15 to 20 minutes praying. And over a 24-hour period, we're going to watch 2008 go away and 2009 come as people are praying for the ministry of this church. I think it's a good way to start the new year of us confessing our allegiance to Christ. The first message of the new year will be on the subject of prayer. And then every day of the week, there'll be opportunities for you to engage in some kind of prayer meeting. And the reason I want to do this is to remind you that at the end of the day, prayerlessness is our declaration of independency from our God. And as your lead pastor, I want to lead you so that you aren't independent from your God, personally or corporately. And so we begin with prayer week. Then we're going to launch into a short series, seven messages on the book of Job. Title of the series is I Choose to Bless. Subtitled, Suffering, Sovereignty, and a Man Named Job. I choose this because the right application of understanding who Christ is should lead to a God-centered view of what happens when hard things come and how does your heart still soar. The reality is, if you know Christ, you will suffer. And I don't think pastors do you a good service if we don't teach you how to suffer before you're in suffering. And the real question in the book of Job is not the why question. Why do things happen to me? Why is this taking place? The real question and the beautiful answer that comes through this book is the who question. Who is it that controls all of the universe and how is it that we can rest our hope on him? So I want to prepare you when hardship comes that you will choose to bless God and not abandon your faith, make shipwreck your relationship with Jesus, or nearly as bad become angry with a good and loving God whose ways don't always make sense to you and you need to become okay with that. Now we're going to take seven weeks to do this book. It's going to be a challenging book. The end series will be strict verse by verse, line by line, every verse by every verse. The middle section is going to not be every verse by every verse, and let me tell you why. Because the nature of the book would be such that if we did every verse by every verse, we'd be studying Job for like nine years. The other thing is, is that the nature of the genre of the book, the guys who are in the book, like Eliphaz, repeat themselves over and over and over. So after a while, you'd want to kill Eliphaz if I kept talking about what he said. And so to prevent you from sin and things of that sort, we're going to condense their words. So you know what they're saying and get the point. Rest assured, it'll be an expositional series, but we're going to do it in seven sections. And then after we're completed with the book of Job in March, we will host a new conference here. It's called Think. This year it's called Think 09. It's a conference on theology. And this year the subtitle is, Does the Trinity Matter? We're having Dr. Bruce Ware from Southern Seminary who will come and address us on Sunday morning. And the Saturday before that, he'll do a full-day conference on the subject of Trinity. 
Now, it's going to be a different kind of conference. It's going to be interactive, very practical, very personal. This is designed not just to be something that impacts your head, but something that really impacts your life. So our view is people from all walks of life, even if you think theology is like boring or irrelevant, we want, this is the, your conference. In fact, I kind of argued for this title, but I got overwritten in, in the right way. I argue for this title, um, Think 09, uh, Theology Isn't Boring, Pastors Are. But that didn't work, so... <laughs> Our heart is this. We don't want this to be a boring subject because theology isn't boring. But we want to challenge you to think. Think carefully about issues in our culture that are important. And this is something that we we will be doing on an annual basis. And then rolling into the month of March, we'll begin about a year and a half study of the book of Matthew. Examining this beautiful account of the King of Kings, starting that first section on March 14th, about the advent of Christ. Here he comes as a baby. Wise men come to seek him. Herod tries to kill him. Here he comes and is tempted. He's baptized. And, And what does it mean for Jesus to be here, God with us? So those are the things that we'll be launching into in the first of the year. Now, at the same time, as we're going through these wonderful uh, sections of Scripture, our staff and elders are committed to prayerfully and thoughtfully determining what our growth strategy is as a church ministry. In my letter that I wrote to you, I indicated that from last year to right now, we're up 28% in our attendance. Um, Two of three services are at capacity, and this one in particular is way beyond capacity. Now, for you who have been around here for a while, you may feel like, wow, it just kind of feels normal. And let me tell you, it's not normal to feel this way, okay? And there's things we need to do to to figure out how to help us as a church continue to grow. Because if you're a first-time visitor, it's rather intimidating walking into an environment with so many people and foyers that are packed and difficult to get to children's ministry and all the things that go along with that. In fact, there's a beautiful thing around here. It's called competitive seating at College Park. (laughs) You have to get here early in order to get a seat. And I'll tell you what, there are pastors all around the country who would pay to have that with their people. That, hey, if you don't get here early, you know, you're going to be in the overflow room. And, and what I want you to do is not stop inviting people. We'll, we'll find a way to be able to service them. We've got seats that are reserved for first-time visitors. We're using our overflow uh, seating even better. And some of you, we, we may ask you to park in a different spot. We may ask you to even take your turn in an overflow. We're going to work hard at being sure we've got enough room for our visitors in the interim, but our elders are committed to a discussion over this year as to where are we going with our facility and what about those old plans that we had and and how do those need to be adjusted or changed in light of where we see our church growing. And here's a really important thing as well. When we look at a building, how do we be sure that when we build a new building that it doesn't change the DNA of College Park Church? Because capital campaigns and new buildings have an effect on a congregation. And therefore, we need to think that through very carefully, lest we solve one problem and create a bigger one. And so we're beginning that discussion in 2009. I can tell you, I'm not looking forward to a building project. And I don't know how soon that's going to be in the pipeline. I've done them before. I know what they take. I know the drain and demand on the staff. But I also know this. Our facility presently is hindering our mission And we've got to think carefully and prayerfully consider what the Lord wants us to do about that. In the interim, keep inviting your unchurched folks. Keep praying that God would help us to know what to do. And keep being competitive in your seating. Keep doing that. So exalting Christ is really important. And we're going to think through and pray through these things as we move into 09. Let me talk next about the issue of community. Go over to Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 12. The idea of community is also really important. Essentially, we're asking the question here, how do we help a big church feel small? How do we help a big place uh, connect into the lives of people? And Hebrews 3 gives us a really important text on this subject. Here's what it says. This is chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Notice first here that he warns them that persevering, Lasting all the way to the end is a community project. Listen, you don't do well on your own, friends. You can't make it well trying to fly solo. You need other people who are in your life. In fact, so much so that he warns us that it's a possibility that an evil, unbelieving heart could happen and and you could become so hardened that you would prove that what you confessed before about Christ, you really didn't believe. You just put on some fake garments for a while. And your lack of perseverance gives evidence that you didn't really have the real thing. And so he warns us to say, look, you need to be in a context of a group of people to help verify that you're the real deal. 
And then he says, verse 13, here's the remedy, but exhort one another daily, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Here's the thing. Sin has a hardening effect, and it's deceitful, it says, meaning that you don't know all the time when you've become hardened. Spiritual information without application leads to self-deception. And you know what the problem is with self-deception? You don't know that you're deceived because you're self-deceived. That's why. And the reason that that's so important for us to know is the remedy in the Scriptures is for us to be engaged life on life. And then he goes on in verse 14. He says, For we share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So this text calls us to be really afraid of the reality of our own hearts and to demonstrate that we are committed not only to exalting in Christ, but also to getting into one another's lives. It means that we have to work hard at striving to put people into relationships where they can experience a Christ-centered, intentionally intrusive group of followers of Jesus who live life together redemptively. Meaning, we want to take people and be sure that they have other people engaged in their life. You know, God made us for community. He made us for relationships. He's a triune God Himself. And you realize, don't you, that you were made to do life with other people. I, I don't like watching a sunset or doing anything really by myself. I, I like being with people. And in fact, I think that's the right way to be. What do you call somebody who lives all by himself and doesn't talk to anybody? What do you call him? Good, hermit. What do you call somebody who lives with other people and engages in conversation with them? Normal, exactly, right, right. That's exactly right. They're called normal. The other folks are called hermits. You're designed to do life that way. There's also this desire to share things with other people, right? So every once in a while, I'll, I'll eat something that's like gross, and I'll say to my wife, oh, man, this is disgusting. Taste this, right? <laughs> why do we do that? Because we like to share. That's why. Share gross stuff. Or I'm like, oh, man, that stinks. Here, smell it. Like, right, why? Why do we do that? Because... We're designed for community. And I'm here to tell you that you are designed for community. God wants you to do life with other people. He wants you to be intentional in your relationships with others. He's given us a God-given yearning to know and be known. And what I want you to understand is that every Sunday there are new people here, hurting people, lost people, and they need help. They need to know how to connect. And therefore we need to help them know how to connect. A number of months ago, I asked Doug Paybody to put together a team of people that after the services are available to talk with people and pray with them. And the reason why we did that is because I know that the loneliest place in the world to be is in a congregation of 900 people with a huge burden on your back. And what I want you to do is look around for people you don't know or hurting people and ask them how you can help. Don't be content with, how are you doing? Fine. Don't be content with fine. Grab them and say, how are you doing? And if they don't tell you, shake them till they do. How are you doing? No, tell me really. I want to know how can I pray for you. I want you to mug somebody in Jesus' name in the hallway. I want you to grab somebody and say, man, good to see you today. I want you to focus on not yourself, but coming in and saying, how can I be intentional in my desire to really build into people's lives? It also means that we have to clearly identify the connecting points for hurting people. We have to be clear on our handoffs. By handoffs, I mean this. When you're running a relay race, you can have the fastest runners on the team, but if you drop the baton when you're handing off between runners, you lose the race. And the same thing happens in church ministry. You can have great programs, but unless you're intentional on your handoffs, you'll lose people. They fall between the cracks. So our first-time visitors connecting to the visitor center, to the coffee talk room, those handoffs have to work. They have to work from the parking lot to the visitor center, from the visitor center to the membership class, from the membership class to a small group or an ABF. And we got to work on our handoffs because people matter and hurting people are going to walk away if they're dropped in the process of the handoff. And what I want you to know is every Sunday there are people here who look like they're doing okay, but inside they are dying. And we have to find an environment and a way to help them connect life on life. A couple weeks ago somebody emailed me, a link to a, a particular blog written by a person who attends here. I asked their permission to be able to share this with you. Here's what this young lady wrote. She said, I've been going back to College Park Church on Sunday mornings pretty regularly. I've always liked the worship. I've been convicted nearly every Sunday. 
God has been revealing so much to me through those services. Just stop you right there. We got to praise God that someone is saying that about what's happening here. But, she writes, I am still missing that sense of community and being involved in the body. I want to be active and involved in ministry and community, and this is where I got stuck the last time when I attended College Park. I don't want church just to be a Sunday morning experience for me. Throughout the week, I'm working on my relationship with my Lord and Savior, and God has been so faithful and patient with me in that regard, but there's still something missing. I'm missing that kindred fellowship with other believers. I'm missing interaction with other members of the body in their own unique way. I'm missing people. In short, I'm wanting to be part of the team again. I miss having people involved in my life and being involved in theirs, calling each other out when we need it, encouraging each other to keep on, building one another in Christ, assisting each other when there's a need, praying for one another and counseling one another, meeting one another where they are in the midst of their struggles, pains, and serving alongside one another. Do you hear the longing of her heart? And every Sunday there are people who either have that need or they need to have that need of figuring out how to be able to connect from life to life. What I want you to do is work with us to help make a big church feel small. I don't want an environment that we create here that would just be a come and see. Come and see the new thing that's happening or come and just sit and watch and listen. I want you to help us make this place a congregation for hurting people, to look for new people, to find them and go and minister to them. I want you to realize that most people don't know how to do church like we do it here. In fact, let me show you. How many of you grew up in a church of a thousand or more? Let me see your hands. Okay. So, like 2%. So most people, when they come into a church this size, they have no idea what it was like to grow up in this kind of environment. And while you may feel like the crowded hallways are normal and the competing, competitive seating thing is uh, part of the fabric of the church, people come in, they had no idea how to do that. They didn't know they needed shin guards and shoulder pads to find a seat. <laughs> And so you got to help them. you got to help them find ways to make connections and to bridge life to life. And so the objective for us as we move into the next year for us at this ministry is to figure out how to increase those relational and body life connections. To be able to help regular attenders and visitors and also longtime members connect life on life. A couple weeks ago, I was walking back to my office and I saw one of our our uh, people in our first-hand ministries, people who help our visitors, Bill Long, one of our senior citizens, walking with a young guy, college student. They're walking down that hallway, and they were having such a good time that I said to him, Hey, Bill, this must be your grandson. Could I meet him? And they both looked at me like, What are you talking about? And I was like, Uh-oh. And, and, and Bill said, No, I, this is you know Jim or whatever his name was, and he's a first-time visitor. And at first I said, Oh, I'm sorry. And then I thought, You know what? That's really cool. Because by their demeanor and how they were talking, I thought this was his grandson. And here we have a senior citizen ministering to someone like that in our visitor ministry. And that's the kind of tone, the kind of ministry that I want us to champion and say, yes, that's how we need to operate here at College Park Church. But in order to make that happen, that means that I need you to come on Sundays and have a perspective where you look at life through a lens of how can I use this Sunday to connect to people in their lives. It also means that if you're here on Sundays, and Sunday is your only experience, you just come for one service and then you leave, I don't want you to ever stop coming, but I also want you to know, even challenge you, that you're missing the whole piece of what it means to connect with other believers and how you can really grow in fresh and new ways. I want you to know we believe this is important, not just because it's a strategy, but because I think the Bible tells us that we don't grow well when we try and do it solo. And some of you are here and you are lonely, you're hurting, And you're really killing your own soul because you won't take the first step to say, I need to connect with this body in a fresh and new way. So embracing our calling is the third piece. The second piece was this idea of experiencing community. And the first one is the idea of exalting Christ. Let's now look at this third piece called embracing a calling. What do I mean by this? I want you to remember, if you will, when I candidated here, I walked you through Ephesians chapter 4. I identified for you that every person has a gift. And those gifts are the spoils of war. Jesus died, and when he led captivity captive, he gave gifts to men. And the way he gave those gifts was in people. So that means that this church has gifts in every single person that's here. And the reality is those gifts were designed to be used. Jesus gave you those gifts, and those gifts need to be used to advance his kingdom. 
So I believe that every person is required by God to find a way to be able to use his or her gifts in this body or in some other context. And that using those gifts for the glory of God is a mandate, not an option. And so we say embracing our calling. What do I mean by that? Or embracing a calling. I don't use language like we need to go and do something. And here's why. Because I think that if you can simply help people to figure out what God wants them to do and what he's called them to do, then they will last over the long haul in their service and volunteering. And I just want you to think with me about what is it that God's called you to do? What is it that you're good at? What is it that you're not good at? And some of you need to try some things to figure out what you're good at and what you're not. So you serve in one area and it just bombs, right? And people, they love you and they're like, man, that was great, but man, this is not your thing. Go do something else, right? And we need people around us to help us discern that. We need to be able to find out by trial and error how has God gifted us by His Spirit so that we can use His gifts for His glory. So it means that we need to discern how is God calling us and what exactly is He calling us to do. Now understand, there are hundreds of areas in which you could serve in the church ministry In 2009, while not discounting those important areas inside and outside of the church, we're going to focus our attention and some initiatives in one particular area of ministry. And that area of focus in 2009 is called the Brookside Initiative. Our Christmas offering in December will be dedicated to funding some of the things I'm going to talk with you about this morning. Next year, what we will launch is a long-term and holistic commitment to partner with other ministries and existing ministry partners to be able to redeem a neighborhood on the near east side of our city called Brookside. About 10 years ago, some people from College Park started a ministry in that area called Kids Church. The idea was to minister to kids and their families to really gain a platform of grace so they could communicate the beauty of the gospel. A few years ago, we brought Corey Johnson on staff to lead Kids Church, and now that ministry is ready to expand in terms of the scope and the breadth of its ministry. Our plan is to partner with other area ministries like Shepherd Community Church, Crossroads Bible College, Midwest Food Bank, Child Evangels and Fellowship, the Life Centers of Indianapolis, Heart Change, the Neighborhood Christian Legal Clinic, and other churches. And the goal is to bring the gospel to a needy platform in our city. Our aim is to build ministry vehicles through benevolence and grace and kindness upon which then we can preach the gospel. See, we have an amazing tradition around here at College Park called the Christmas Offerings. And I don't know if you've, all of you are aware of what this church has done over the years, but there's a four-year track record of what you've given in the Christmas offering. Uh, two years ago, you gave over $550,000 to start an anti-human trafficking program in Com- Cambodia. Uh, last year, you gave over $445,000 in funded scholarships and construction projects to reach the Adav people through a seminary in India. And this year, what our aim is, is to take that Christmas offering and fund seven to ten strategic initiatives in the Brookside neighborhood. We've contacted our ministry partners. We said, this is what we'd like to do, and therefore submit proposals to us as to how you could use funds to channel your resources to meet some needs in this neighborhood. And you're going to hear some more specifics about this in the weeks to come, but it includes everything from funding for kids' church outreach initiatives, the renovation of a ministry center in the heart of of the city or the neighborhood of Brookside. There's been a building that was donated to Shepherd Community Center that we're going to be able to use as a hub for ministry there. We have proposals from Child Evangelism Fellowship for Bible clubs in the schools right in the heart of this area of the city. We have literacy programs that we want to be able to bring online. You, You can't teach a kid how to be able to grow and read his Bible if he can't even read. So we've got to start there, and, and that's an important need for us to meet. We have proposals that we would give three times the amount of food donations to the neighborhood. It's hard to get a kid's attention when his stomach is hungry and empty. We have scholarships on the line for Crossroads Bible College students who will complete an urban internship in the Brookside neighborhood. So you can see the beauty of this is that we're using partners and using other churches even and channeling resources into this neighborhood. This project will be a long-term commitment. A long-term commitment where we will really make a difference. And listen to me, College Park, this church can really make a difference in this neighborhood. Imagine with me a neighborhood right now that is called by our police force, the swamp, that is transformed into a beautiful, redemptive community. 
Imagine with me neighborhoods that are restored or families that are kept together, kids who can finally read, have constructive activities after church, high school graduation rates that would dramatically improve. Imagine churches now that are filled with people in that neighborhood who hear the gospel because they've seen the gospel lived out in their community. You need to know that the Brookside Initiative will probably not result in any more people coming to our facility at 96th and Town. That's not our goal. Our goal is to not turn our eyes away from the needs of our own city. And while we can't make a difference everywhere, hear me, we can make a difference here. In College Park, we can literally change the culture of a neighborhood and give some people some hope. And from the depth of my soul, I just believe that this is just plain right. For too long, the evangelical church has ignored social justice issues. In fact, social justice issues were primarily the concern of liberal churches, while fundamentalist and evangelical churches were content just to preach. And while we're not going to stop preaching, ever, we must build bridges of grace that can bear the weight of truth. We have to establish a reputation of love and kindness and compassion so that we can declare the gospel on those platforms. For me, there's a text in Isaiah that gets me on my face and reminds me of the importance of this subject. Isaiah 1, listen to verses 14 to 18. He says, your new moons, this is God speaking to his people, your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hates. Your worship is a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Go on in the text and it says, though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be white as snow. You know what the sins are in this text? The sins, he says, Remove the evil from your deeds. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. The sins that are like scarlet is the church or the people of God who refused to understand that when they worshipped God and didn't deal with oppression in their culture, God didn't want to hear about their worship anymore. It is that the church cannot turn a blind eye away from the needs of its society and think that it has done everything just because it has the right message. The right message will result in compassionate means. See, God is not interested in people who are busy worshiping Him who are not concerned for the needs of oppressed people in their own backyard. And while there will be a lot of things that we do in 2009, this will be the year where we focus on our sites on a very needy area of our city and ask ourselves, what will College Park do about it? After the first service, I had an IMPD officer who came up to me and said, I serve in the police force and I'm assigned to this area and I can only imagine the beauty of what would happen if we really transformed this neighborhood. And I could say to my fellow officers, my church made a difference here. That's cool. This is not a program, beloved. This is a calling, calling deep within my own soul. When we were in Michigan, we were in the foster care program in our county. We ministered to some hurting kids, loved on some child protective service workers, got involved in the social service of our county and tried to make a difference. And one night I was putting one of our kids, our foster kids to bed. She'd been delivered to us at four in the morning. And as I tucked her into bed, she had this pretty little blue blanket that she was wrapped up in, and I tucked her into bed, and as I pulled my hand out from laying her in bed, a tag on the, on the blanket caught my arm, and I turned the tag over, and it said, Jesus loves you. And I flipped the tag on the other side, and it said the name of a particular church that was not known for its gospel preaching in our county at all. And I said to my wife, why aren't we doing this? Why aren't we the ones that are on the backside of a tag? And that led to an initiative at our church in West Michigan where we blessed the socks off a particular social service agency and we flooded them with 150 plus bags of goodies and helps and diapers such that the foster care people said, you know what your church did? Your church literally increased our percentage of placement of children into foster homes because now parents have the resources that we can get kids into homes faster. Thank you. You made a difference. So you can't do everything, but we got to do something. 
See, these are exciting days for us at College Park. Days of calling, days of community, days of Christ. And what I want you to understand is that while we have blue skies ahead of us as a church ministry with lots of opportunity and lots of needs, I believe that God has His play, His hand on us and we ought never to take it for granted. He has His hand on this church and we ought to continually ask ourselves and look around and say to each other, what does God want us to do? What is He calling us to do? Because this mission of igniting a passion to follow Jesus is not just words on a little banner. It is the passion of our souls. It's the calling of our hearts. And listen to me, it is the hope for a neighborhood called Brookside. It is that the church has been given the deposit of truth and hope, truth and hope, truth and hope. And if we don't declare both truth and hope, then who will? In the midst of a nation and a world that's dying for change and wanting things to turn around, it's time for the church to stand up and say, oh, by the way, we have the ancient words from the living God who alone knows how to fix social problems and bring people into relationship with Him because we have a God that can change the one thing that no government, program, or politician can ever address. It's the heart. And I want to call you today to give your money and give your lives and give your hearts and give your thinking and strategy and skills to how we can take this church and leverage all of the things that God has done for His glory to exalt Christ, to experience community, and to embrace a calling across the board, but specifically in the heart of our city for the glory and the fame of our risen Savior. So Lord Jesus, would you help us to get this right right into our souls, into our minds and hearts. Lord, this is not a program for me. This is not a... It's not... It's not just a form. This is the reality, God, of what it is that I believe that your church can do. I believe this church can do this. And so would you help us? Help us to be humble. Help us to be dependent. But help us to not waste our life and waste what you've brought us through and instead to turn this gold into the beautiful resources of advancing the kingdom of Christ. Lord, there's blue skies ahead for this ministry, but it's only because of your grace. And so we're asking you to help us to know what is our place, what's our calling, what do you want us to do? Lord, we don't want to be known as a church that's lukewarm, thinks she's rich when she's really poor, blind, and naked. So keep us on our face, keep us humble, but give us a burning passion that just won't go away. Take the glory of Christ and say, let's go make a difference for the glory and name of Jesus. And we ask this in your name, Christ. Amen.